So let's hear now the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hand his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Well, there are often times as we are looking at secular culture or watching the world around us that we conclude, aha, I can see it. Your ethics are inconsistent. We can look at the way they make decisions, people, that is, who are not followers of Jesus Christ, and we can conclude, ha, gotcha, I can show people now that you are wrong. And this instinct wells up in us when we see inconsistencies in the ethics of the world around us. Just in the last two days, a person who was born male, but who now identifies as female, said that it was unfair for people who are like this person to compete against girls. Now, if you followed any of my logic or you know the story, I'm, I'm not going into the details on purpose. I'm only highlighting the inconsistency of the logic of this person. And I pointed out only to show an example of what I'm describing. Another example could be uh, the author of the, the Harry Potter stories. Maybe some of you remember last summer when she affirmed that a, a, a person who has a, a cycle is called a woman. Again, not getting into the details, but she was lambasted for making this statement as a person who uh, would also be for other agendas that are not biblical. She was uh, accused of, of being hateful by Harry Potter himself. Well, we have the temptation when we hear of these stories to have this uh, reaction of, uh, aha, you see, look, they're inconsistent. 
ha, we got you this time. That can be our reaction when we think of uh, ethics related to gender or ethics related to marriage, ethics related to sexuality. We have this temptation to conclude, ha, we got you. We're right. And I believe this passage, which focuses on uh, the topics of marriage, the topics of singleness, the topics of children, the topics of divorce, uh, is a time that we could be tempted to say, look, look how clear and right it is to hold this conviction. But I believe that our posture as we approach these verses, as we approach this passage, should not be one of, of superiority, but rather one of great compassion when we see the inconsistencies of the worldviews around us, when we see the inconsistencies of, of our friends, of our neighbors, of our loved ones, and we think, aha, finally, I feel smarter than you. Instead, our reaction should rather be compassion. And I believe that is actually true based on the verses that we see here tonight. Now, if you look at our verses, verses 1 and 2, we receive our ethics about marriage and about creation and about divorce and about singleness and about children. We receive these ethics in the shadow of the cross of Jesus Christ. When we hear of how we should think about marriage or singleness or divorce or children, when we hear that, Matthew intentionally frames it in the part of the narrative where Jesus has just entered Judea. He has just entered into the state, you might say, where Jerusalem was. These ethics that we hold and desire to follow as followers of Jesus, they come to us in the shadow of the cross. The cross where Jesus said he must die to save his people from their sins. The cross that he said he was going to go to and then rise again. That cross, that cross is the thing that is casting a shadow over the teaching of Matthew 18 and Matthew 19 because it is in Matthew 16 and 17 when Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem to die and to rise again. To suffer. And so when we receive all of these ethics, we have to start out not with a position of superiority, but rather with one of compassion, because we know that we are people who receive these ethics from the shadows of the cross of Golgotha. If you look at verse 1, it says explicitly when he had finished these sayings, that is the fourth discourse in Matthew 18, he went from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. He is on his way to Jerusalem. But Matthew tells us even more about our states and our dependence and need for Jesus. In verse 2, it's not just the cross of Christ that is casting a shadow over these words. It is actually our need for healing. If you look at verse 2, crowds followed him and he healed them there. This is the same state that we are in. People in desperate need of the healing touch of Jesus Christ. In desperate need of the implications of the cross of Christ to enter into our life. So, as we do our ethics, and we should, we should take our cues for these ethics from King Jesus who was crucified on our behalf. We should take our ethics from the one who died for us for sin, for our sin specifically. 
We should do our ethics in the shadow of the cross, which inaugurated the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the kingdom which we seek to live in by living under his rule and reign. Now, with that said, with hopefully that framework that Matthew lays for us of the cross being mentioned right out of the gate as he enters into this teaching on ethics, let me say we we do need to do our ethics. While, yes, our tone must be compassionate and clear, we do need to do our ethics because we need to know why we believe that the kingdom should be oriented in a certain way. The kingdom should have certain, certain guidelines and rules which enable us to actually follow the king. So we need to know the grounds of our belief. We need to know why we believe what we believe. And in this passage, I believe that Jesus does that in four different ways. Matthew frames it in the shadow of the cross, but then Jesus gives us the grounds for marriage. That is the reason. Why do we believe marriage exists? The grounds for marriage are clearly articulated in verses 1 through 6. And then 7 and 9, Jesus gives the grounds for divorce. He continues in 10 through 12 with the grounds for singleness. And then finally, he concludes 13 through 15 with the grounds for children. Why should anyone have children? Why should anyone get married? Why should anyone be divorced? Why should anyone pursue singleness? Jesus answers these questions in these four sections. We're going to begin with the grounds for marriage. And as I said, and as I'm going to continually repeat We do our ethics in the shadow of the cross. If we stop doing our ethics in the shadow of the cross, they're not our ethics. If we forget that the king was crowned by a cross and that these ethics, these teachings come as he is on his way to Jerusalem, if we forget that, then they're not our ethics. Insofar as we remember that we receive them from the shadow of the cross, then we can actually have ears to hear when Jesus speaks to us. Well, with that said, let's look at the grounds for marriage, verses 1 through 6. We already set it up, so we'll go to verse 3. The Pharisees come to him, as they are prone to do, looking to test him. The reason they're looking to test him is because they are increasingly threatened. They're threatened. Why? Because of the crowds. The crowds are following Jesus. That means that Jesus is powerful. That means that people want what Jesus has. That's what a crowd is. Well, these leaders, these Pharisees, were the ones who had that power before. They were the ones who were able to control the masses. But now the masses are following after the carpenter. And so they're threatened. So what do they seek to do? They seek to test him. And they test him specifically with the topic of divorce. Now, we don't know exactly why. Uh, But it's possible that they're just looking to to trick him. Something to show that he has broken the Old Testament law. You'll notice they say, is it lawful? Uh, They want grounds to be able to crucify him. So if they can find a way to show that he has broken the law, they they are going to find that. But it also could be that because John the Baptist, if you remember, was killed for, for a specific thing. He was killed for challenging Herod's view of divorce. And remarriage. You may remember that. Um, that's why John the Baptist got killed because he, he was saying challenging things about divorce and remarriage. 
to his captor. So perhaps if the Pharisees can get Jesus tripped up, then maybe they'll be able to to hand him off to Herod to be killed. Or maybe if he trips up on the Old Testament law, they they can find a way to say, look, he's breaking the law. He's clearly not the Messiah. Whatever it is, they're trying to stump him because they are afraid. And their question says, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, this little phrase, for any cause, probably uh, leads us to ask, well, what sort of causes were out there? And there were two schools of thought in first century uh, Judaism. One school of thought basically said, you can divorce your wife if she uh, overcooks dinner. And that's unfortunately real. And then there was a, a more restricted view. Uh, you might say a view that, that said there could only be legitimate cause, but that quote-unquote legitimate cause was never something that they could clarify or, or make very, very distinct the way that we see Jesus does. And so they ask, is any cause acceptable? Because they're trying to find a way to test him. Why? Because they're threatened by him. They want to destroy him. They've said explicitly. But Jesus responds, And he's not in any way scared of their testing. He responds and he takes them to the thing that they are supposedly the experts on, the Old Testament law. He is in no way backing down from their question, but he instead says, have you not read? These guys probably had the whole thing memorized. And here he is saying, have you not read? And he specifically in verse 4 points them to the pre-fall ethics of Genesis 1 and 2. Now, when I say pre-fall, I mean the fall, the fall of mankind, sin entered the world in Genesis 3. Well, Jesus takes these Pharisees to Genesis 1 in verse 4 and to Genesis 2 in verse 5. It's significant because Jesus, if you remember, in Matthew chapter 1, is launching the new creation. Matthew 1.1 talks about the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The genealogy points us back, what? To Genesis. Jesus is launching the new creation, and his new creation is going to be in continuity with the good of the old creation. God's original creation was good, he says, even very good. And so Jesus' new creation, which he's launching through his cross and resurrection, is in continuity with the ordinances set in motion before the fall. Now, I, I, I said all that, but now let's see if we can prove it. Verse 4 is a direct quote from Genesis 1.27. From the beginning, he made them male and female. He's quoting Genesis 1.27. But then Genesis 2.24 is also quoted. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Jesus is interested in pre-fall ethics to answer their question about Divorce, But he's, instead of explaining divorce, he takes them to the grounds for marriage. And the grounds for marriage, quite simply, are God. God is the reason marriage exists. That's what these verses teach us. And they teach us that in two ways. They show us, they show us that God is different from us and that we are dependent on him. Different and dependent. That is the grounds In verses 4 and 5. And that is what Jesus offers for them. He says first that we are dependent on God. He's explaining why marriage exists. He says we are dependent on God. He created them from the beginning. He made them male and female. 
that Jesus is emphasizing our dependence on God for our very existence. He's telling us that we exist because God created us. He says it twice in two different ways. He created them and he made them. He's highlighting that we do not exist of ourselves. God exists of himself, but we exist in dependence on him. We are completely dependent on God and therefore we are different from God. He is the creator. We are the creature. That's what verse four is teaching us. He created or made. We are the created ones. We are the creatures. Dependence and difference defines our relationship with God, but it's actually the grounds for marriage. You look at verse five, the key word here, Therefore, based on our dependence and difference, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Because God is the creator and has created us male and female, he gets to decide our purpose. God created them male and female. Verse 4, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Because God is the creator, he gets to determine the purpose of his creation. So why does marriage exist? It's because of God. Now, just to make that explicitly clear, verse six, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus is giving the explanation or the rationale or for the, the reason for why marriage exists. And he takes us to the pre-fall creation ethic. We are created, that makes us dependent, and we are created, and that makes us different. And because of that, God gets to decide why we exist and explicitly why we exist, male and female. He is the one who determines why we were created male and female. He is the one who gets to say, the purpose of being created male and female is this. And he tells us what it is. It's that the two shall become one flesh. Marriage makes no sense apart from God. Uh, Does intimacy, I use that word because of the ears in a room, Intimacy. Does intimacy uh, exist apart from God? Sure. Could living together exist apart from God? Sure. Uh, could even offspring exist apart from the explanation of God? Sure. Or even tax breaks? I think so. Sure. But marriage? According to Jesus, the grounds for marriage are explicitly clear. God. God created them. That God created them. That makes them dependent. It makes them different. God created them. Therefore, he gets to decide their purpose. That's what this word therefore means. He gets to decide that the reason they were created male and female, that is different and distinct, is so that he can bring them together in union. The purpose is defined by God because we are his creatures. Now, God's ground for marriage is ultimately himself. Jesus teaches that explicitly. And we might think, well, why does that really matter right now? Well, they're asking whether it's okay to divorce for any cause. Is it okay to divorce for any cause? That's their question. Remember, Jesus is explaining that this is a work of God. 
Marriage is a work of God. The union is mystical. It is a work of God. His answer to the question for can we divorce for any reason is to explain to them how sacred marriage is. And so that's why we start out explaining that the grounds for marriage are God. And for us, if we think of the practical implications for this, it immediately tells us that we don't get to decide why we exist. We're creatures. We were brought into the world for a purpose. That purpose is defined by our creator. Outside, of course, outside of the realm of marriage, in every realm, in every realm, we were created for a purpose that our creator gets to decide. That's what Jesus believes. That's what Jesus teaches when people challenge the sanctity of marriage. Now, he does, with that said, he does provide grounds for divorce. So if you look at verses 7 through 9, we see with this huge, massive teaching about the importance of marriage, that it is God's idea and that it is God who accomplishes it, we see that he does then move into their actual question because they come back to it. If you look at verse 7, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Why? They think, oh, you want to quote Moses? Because Moses is the, the, the author of Genesis 1 and 2. We'll quote Moses. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce? Well, Jesus responds not just by answering their question, but by reframing their question. Look at verse 8. He allowed you to divorce your wives, Jesus said. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed divorce. The divorces in Deuteronomy 24 that these Pharisees are referring to, the divorces that we're referring to, in, in most people's understanding, have already existed when Moses comes along and tells them, for those of you who have divorced your wife, you should give her a certificate of divorce. Now, now this is a very contested passage in Deuteronomy 24, but the, the consensus teaching, I believe, and the clear teaching, is that Moses tells them to write a certificate of divorce so that the woman had a legitimate divorce. Instead of being divorced and getting passed around, perhaps, she would now have essentially a legitimate divorce so that she could not just go to one man and then the original husband say, actually, she's my husband. The certificate of divorce came along to actually protect the woman. It did not come along as a command, you should divorce your wife. That's how the Pharisees are asking the question, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Jesus says, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. Why? Because of hardness in your heart. Sin. Sin is the reason that he allowed it. But it wasn't that way from the beginning. He's summarizing his initial point. From the beginning, it was not so. Moses essentially allowed it. Not the divorce per se, but he allowed these certificates to be written to protect the women. But Jesus does go on to provide one ground in his entire teaching. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, in the entire corpus of Jesus' teaching, he gives one exception for divorce. One exception for divorce. And it's found explicitly in these words. Explicitly in these words. The exception for divorce, according to verse 9, is this phrase, 
sexual immorality. Now, the phrase sexual immorality is a different Greek word than the word adultery that's right below it. You notice that Jesus says, except for sexual immorality, and then he uses the word adultery roughly six words later. And that, that distinction is important because what it means is, whatever this sexual immorality is, it is a bigger category than the smaller category that we would call adultery. Adultery would be unfaithfulness in an explicit way, but sexual immorality could be a broader category. And in a lot of ways, it's difficult to know exactly what Jesus has in mind when he says sexual immorality. But what I believe this passage from its context is teaching when it says sexual immorality is that it's broader, it's a broader category than adultery, and it's some type of sin which damages the physical union between a husband and a wife. I'll repeat that. It's broader than adultery, but at the same time, it must be confined and it must damage in some way the physical union between a woman and a man, a husband and a wife. The reason I believe that is because of Jesus' emphasis on the fact that God created them as physical bodies, male and female, and then God is the one who gives them this union based on their maleness and their femaleness. And so whatever the sin of this sexual immorality is, it in some way has to jeopardize that physical union. Now, the reason I mention that is because Jesus does say that if we, if we lust in our hearts, we've con- committed adultery. And I, I think it's, a, it's appropriate to say Jesus doesn't have in mind every time a wife or a husband commits some type of lust in their mind, that that is now a grounds for divorce. Because what does he say? He says that's worse than adultery. Well, if that's worse than adultery, then surely it's grounds for divorce. I think if we try and apply this phrase sexual immorality too loosely outside of the context of Jesus talking about the goodness of the physical union of marriage, then what we'll do is we'll, we'll create uh, an inappropriate grounds for divorce. Now, with that said, that is, the, the, in, in a lot of ways, the, the, the broadest and the most specific that I can be trying to actually interpret this specific passage. Now, the way this practically works itself out in the life of the church, however, is that if there is some sort of sexual immorality in a marriage, the thing that you should do, of course, is grieve. You should grieve that sin. And you should pray. And you should bring your elders and perhaps your elders' wives into that conflict with your spouse. You should seek the help of the church that that Jesus gave you to shepherd you through that crisis, through that sin. And perhaps you will conclude in the end that the only way is divorce. But that is only permitted. It is not required. And so when you practically, unfortunately, this happens in the life of the church, when you are practically in one of those situations, the first thing you should do for that person who's been sinned against in that way is to help them to grieve that sin. You should remind them that this ethic is given under the shadow of the cross and you help them grieve by nature of the reality of the cross. And you point them to the compassion of Christ and the holiness of Christ and the faithfulness of Christ. You grieve with them and you pray with them and then you get 
people involved who can help walk with them through that trial. And perhaps the marriage can be saved. And perhaps it won't be. Before we move on from this, we should mention that there is one other grounds for divorce that the New Testament talks about. The words of Jesus, as I said, are restricted to this exception clause of sexual immorality. When sexual immorality is not included, Jesus says, if you divorce your wife and then you go marry another person, you've committed adultery because you're still married to your first wife or you're still married to your first husband. But Paul talks about Another clause, we might say, or another grounds for divorce, which is abandonment. Now, abandonment in 1 Corinthians 7 is another clause that if somebody said, my spouse has completely abandoned me, I I believe I'm going to have to divorce them. Uh, Then there is a chance that that would be a legitimate grounds for divorce. But you should repeat the same process if somebody comes to you and reports to you that there is some type of abandonment going on in the marriage. Should grieve with them. Perhaps get them to safety if necessary. Grieve with them. Pray with them. Perhaps include law enforcement if necessary. Grieve with them. Pray with them. Bring in the necessary resources, but bring them under the shepherding of the church so that, if necessary, the marriage might be saved. The goal is still reconciliation in both of these clauses where divorce is permitted. The goal is reconciliation. And Jesus has given under shepherds to his flock, to his people, to help lead people to reconciliation. That is the goal. But where it is not capable, where it's not possible, these are the two grounds that the New Testament and our confession talks about. Namely, sexual immorality and abandonment. I had to mention that because, unfortunately, we, we still live after the fall. And we're still, as a church, seeking to, to find a way forward in many situations to bring about that reconciliation as our first goal, but to submit to Jesus' ethics as our ultimate goal, whatever happens in those marriages. So the grounds for divorce, as I said, there are two. But Jesus is making it clear. The goal is for these unions that God has brought together to endure. That's the goal. Well, we continue on now. The grounds for singleness. The grounds for singleness. The disciples in 10 through 12 react to this teaching. They say, if such is the case, that is the teaching you just gave, this really intense standard, Jesus. If such is the case, it is better not to marry. They're essentially saying, the standard that you've put forward, Jesus, is nearly impossible. But Jesus has already done his work. He's grounded it in Genesis 1 and 2. He's shown that this is what's on God's heart for marriage. And so so they are struggling with this. But Jesus responds, in a certain sense, sympathetically. In a certain sense, sympathetically to their pushback. And he says, not everyone can receive this saying. Now, most likely when he says this saying, he's referring to verse 10 specifically. The thing the disciples said, he's acknowledging the veracity of their statement. But at the same time, he is at the same time saying, but that that truth that you just put out there is not for everyone. Not everyone can receive the saying that it's better not to marry. 
Jesus says, but only to those whom it is given. Only to those whom it is given. And it's not given to all. That's the implication. It's only for some. But he does provide three reasons or three occasions or three situations, you might say, where somebody has grounds for singleness in the kingdom. And he uses this word eunuch. It's not a word that we use commonly. In a lot of ways, you could think of this as celibacy. These are people who pursued celibacy. And I've chosen the word singleness because that's the word that we use to talk about people who are pursuing celibacy in the life of the church. Obviously, there's lots more to talk about with singleness than celibacy. Obviously. But this is what Jesus is focused on in these passages. And so that's why I bring that up. And he, he says there's three reasons people become eunuchs. That is, those who can't procreate. That's why I use the word celibacy. Three reasons, Jesus says, that people become eunuchs. He's giving us the grounds for singleness, though, when we think about the application. The first is because someone else has made, uh, excuse me, the first is because they've been a eunuch from birth. That's the first reason. A eunuch from birth. Something um, perhaps physical, Jesus doesn't explain. He just says, from birth, there's no purpose clause, though, attached Others, he says, have been made eunuchs by men. That is, someone else caused them to be a eunuch. Now, in the ancient world, if somebody was going to be in charge of a group of women in a court, and they were going to care for those women, if a man was going to receive that responsibility, then he could perhaps have to become a eunuch. Jesus is in no way endorsing this, for the record. He is just saying, here are some of the situations in which someone might be made a eunuch. But the third reason has a purpose clause attached. There are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Now, we don't believe Jesus is talking about any sort of self-mutilation here. I believe Jesus is saying that there are people who might want to be married, but in the Lord's providence, in his mysterious providence, that hasn't been God's will for their life. And so they are not procreating, they are eunuchs, they are celibates, and they have decided to be eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. There are people who want to be married, but for some reason, in God's will, that is not happening. It's mysterious, and it's difficult, and it's unknown. Whatever it is, they still can have great purpose within that season, however long, that season of singleness, however long it lasts, they can be single for the kingdom of heaven, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. There are others who don't want to be married, who perhaps don't have a strong desire for things associated with marriage, and so they just decide, I I don't want to be married. And they too can be single for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus is focusing in on this third thing, this third, this third category of being a eunuch. He's saying they have made themselves eunuchs. That is, they aren't celibate, and they're choosing, they are celibate, they're choosing to stay that way for a reason, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And the reason I think this matters is people who are, are single but desire to be married, perhaps Christians who are single desire to be married, could go and procreate. They can marry a non-believer. But Jesus is saying, no, for the sake of the kingdom, 
Some of these people, that is, people who want to be under the reign of Christ in his kingdom, have decided, I won't marry a non-Christian. And so my celibacy will be for the sake of the kingdom insofar as I follow my king, even though I, I would still wish to be married. When that is your situation, you have to know that during the entirety of that situation, there is going to simultaneously At the same time, there's going to be grief and the joys of the kingdom. If you become a person who says, I've made myself celibate for the sake of the kingdom. If you've decided that that's your your season from the Lord, during the the entirety of it, there will be both grief and the joys of the kingdom. I do not think there will come a time when you conclude, oh, um... Yeah, I, I don't even want to be married anymore. You might, you might eventually have that conclusion, but there will still be grief associated with that. My point is to highlight that this is, this is a hard and difficult calling. And I'm saying it to acknowledge the grief that many of you feel. I'm saying it to, to acknowledge to you that, that there is going to be grief. But at the same time, The kingdom of heaven is a place of joy. The kingdom of heaven is a place where the spirit is bringing joy. It doesn't mean the grief is going to go away. But it does mean that the joys of the kingdom will also be present. I think we have to acknowledge both. And perhaps, perhaps uh, the Lord will take away your desire for marriage. Um, That could happen. Um, But throughout... It is okay to grieve. It's okay to grieve that desire. It's okay to acknowledge that grief to people you trust. It's okay to tell them that you don't know what to do with it. It's okay to grieve. But it's not okay to grieve as those with no hope. There will be both grief and joy for people who have decided to be celibate for the kingdom of heaven. It will be a mixture of both. But there are good grounds, according to Jesus, for singleness. That's the point that I want to make. There are good grounds for singleness, according to Jesus. Well, we conclude briefly with these grounds for children, 13 through 15. The long and short of these verses is that Jesus wants the little children. Why should there be children in this world? People are concluding that they should should stop having children because it would reduce the, the carbon footprint if there were less children. But Jesus is saying that he wants children to come to him. And so the, the, the import of these verses is the goodness of children. Luke even says the word infant whenever he talks about this story. He says, let the infants come. The point is that Jesus wants people who have this dependent posture to come to him. He wants people who are humble and dependent and childlike to come to him. He says to such as these, that is children, even infants, to such belong the kingdom of heaven. Now as I began this story, as I began this passage, this story is told in the shadow 
of the cross. These teachings are given in the shadow of the cross. And at the end of 15, we see Jesus go on his way. It says, he laid hands on them, that is the children, and he went away. And we don't know exactly where he's going, but we know he has set his heart and his mind and his path to Jerusalem. And it reminds us that all of these teachings, all of these ethics are given in the shadow of the cross. He gives us his ethics about marriage and divorce and singleness and children in the shadow of Golgotha, in the shadow of his sufferings. Because that is where you find the kingdom. When you are in the shadow of the cross, that is Jesus' path to the cross, when you are taking up your cross, then you are more and more and more experiencing the kingdom. And so when we come to these very hard teachings about marriage, when we come to these hard teachings about divorce, about singleness, we have to remember that they're given to us from our Savior in the shadow of the cross. If our ethics truly demonstrate obedience to Christ, it will be clear to the watching world that we obey them in such a way that we believe that we have been saved, that we believe that Jesus died for our sins. If our ethics become some sort of badge of honor where we conclude, aha, we're right, it will demonstrate that we do not know the king who gave us the ethics. But the more we hear these ethics, and we should, and we must submit to them, with the cross in view, the more we will be seasoned by the work of the Spirit growing in us this childlike humility, this dependence on God. And it will be more and more clear that we are people who know that Jesus came not to make us in any way arrogant, but rather to make us meek, to make us humble, to make us like little children. As you pursue these ethics, pursue them with that posture, trusting that along the way, whatever your season is, there will be both grief and joy in the kingdom until Christ returns. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for uh, Jesus, that he is alive and reigning and sending the Spirit now to enable us to obey these hard commands. And we pray that you would enable us to obey because we know that in them there is great joy. Joy in obeying, joy in the blessing that comes, but joy in ultimately knowing you more and more. And we pray that that's what would happen as we seek to follow Jesus our King. Amen.